A certain light was beginning to dawn dimly within her, the light which, showing the way, forbids it. At that early period it served but to bewilder her. It moved her to dreams, to thoughtfulness, to the shadowy anguish which had overcome her the midnight when she had abandoned herself to tears. In short, Mrs. Pontellier was beginning to realize her position in the universe as a human being, and to recognize her relations as an individual to the world within and about her. The beginning of things, of a world especially, is necessarily vague, tangled, chaotic, and exceedingly disturbing. How few of us ever emerge from such beginning! How many souls perish in its tumult! The voice of the sea is seductive, never ceasing, whispering, clamoring, murmuring, inviting the soul to wander for a spell in abysses of solitude, to lose itself in mazes of inward contemplation. The voice of the sea speaks to the soul. The touch of the sea is sensuous, enfolding the body in its soft, close embrace. This is the explosive story of the Karamazov family. The seed of depravity and sin that was in their father was the only thing the brothers had in common. back to the Reader's Karamazov. We are your hosts, the Bastard Sons of Hegel. I am Carl Bookmarks. And I'm Soren Rearguard. We are not joined tonight by Friedrich Pietsche, unfortunately. But uh, it seems like he maybe gave us conflicting reports about where, where he is. Carl, what did he what did he say to you? Yeah, uh, I heard that, you know, unfortunately, Friedrich Pietsche is away this week and that he's holed up finishing his magnum opus. It's a musical about a Jewish pastry chef whose three independent-minded daughters each marry a baker with an increasingly more outrageous taste for weird concoctions. Move over Great British Baking Show, we're talking cranberry quiches, carrot-flavored donuts, and a croquembush the flavor of human tears. The play is titled Cobbler on the Roof of My Mouth, and will open soon in a theater near you. What did you hear, Soren? I also heard something about cobblers, but uh, this was a little bit different for me. What I heard was that he's off writing a memoir about the time he spent as a cobbler, particularly one memorable day in which he had to make footwear for four very famous customers. First, in came the actor Jackman, known for playing Wolverine. Then, in came the actor Laurie, famous for playing Dr. Gregory House. Then, in came the actor well-known for his roles in romantic comedies such as Notting Hill. And finally, in came the actor, very well-known for playing Lord Grantham on Downton Abbey. I think he's thinking of titling it Shoes Man, All to Hughes Man. Wow. Okay. So, yeah. Maybe he's maybe he's just doing both. You know, he's a prolific guy. Yeah. <laughs> Yep, he's all over the place. Hopefully he'll be back with us next time so you won't have to endure just the two of us. <laughs> <laughs> We're going back to our roots here, uh, the the original cast. 
But we have an exciting episode for you today. Uh, we're entering our third phase of this season of Middlemarch. We've done Middlemarch in four episodes. We've done our first round of other picks, the key to all mythologies. And now we're entering round sort of two of riffs on Middlemarch. This one we're calling Lonely Women in Your Area. We're starting tonight with Carl's pick, Kate Chopin's The Awakening. We will get to that in just a moment, but first a little bit of pod business as always. Be sure to follow us on social media. We're on Twitter at The Readers K. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash The Readers Karamazov. You can find our pod through Apple Podcasts, on Spotify. You can go to thereaderskaramazov.podbean.com. And as always, we welcome your feedback to us, whether that comes via social media or also via email. You can email us, thereaderskaramazov at gmail.com. I did have one piece of reader feedback from our previous episode on Gaojing Zhen's Soul Mountain. A uh, longtime listener, James, let me know via Twitter that our discussion of the wild man in Soul Mountain, he says, is borne out by some recent archaeological discoveries of, in particular, uh, a subspecies of humans, early humans known as Denisovans that were active in um, in Asia in particular, you know, went extinct however long ago, but maybe not. Maybe they're still wandering around the forests <laughs> of China somewhere. Um, I thought that was a really interesting catch by James. If you want to know more about that, you can um, look them up online. They're pretty fascinating, uh, but I thought that was a nice connection for us. So thank you, James, for enlightening us on early man and his place in China. So... As always, we welcome far-flung comments like that and um, questions about any of the texts we've been reading. We're always happy to catch back up on previous things, talk about them a little bit before we dive into the meat of any given episode. But let's go ahead and do that now. Carl, this is your pick, Kate Chopin's The Awakening, and I'm going to toss it over to you in just a minute to tell us about why you picked it and what you find kind of preliminarily interesting about it. But I'm going to start, as always, with our plot summary. Um, many of you may have read... The Awakening at some point in your life, maybe in a literature class in high school or college. If you haven't, or you just don't remember very well, here are the basics of the plot. So The Awakening takes place in sort of turn of the 20th century New Orleans and the, the surrounding area. And it follows um, a woman named Edna Pontellier, who is the unhappy wife of Mr. Pontellier, who's a you know French Creole businessman in, in New Orleans. And in many ways, Edna has everything she could want. She's got a kind of doting husband who is always buying her bonbons and two fine young sons that she's re helping to rear and social status and standing in the world. And so she, she has a life of leisure. She can kind of paint as she wants to. She's a painter and she can listen to music when she wants to. And they spend all summer on an island out in the middle of Louisiana She's got lots of servants to take care of her, but she still finds herself somewhat unsatisfied, and she finds herself being awakened somewhat on this island over the summer with an encounter with the young man, Robert Lebrun, and he awakens these romantic feelings in her in a way that she hasn't experienced for her husband. She's been in a marriage, not quite of convenience, but of sort of mild acceptance of each other, but this encounter with Lebrun shakes her and when he goes off to Mexico City to try to make his fortune she's left in New Orleans trying to sort through her feelings what she wants out of life she has an encounter with another man who's more of a scoundrel and a cad 
But things come to a head when LeBron comes back to New Orleans. They sort of declare their love for each other, but he decides he cannot possibly expose her to the shame and ridicule that she would face if she were to leave her husband. And so he he goes away, supposedly for her own good. And then we'll talk a little bit about the actual ending of the book. But we're left at a place where she is not able to fulfill the des- the desires of her heart the way that she wants to. So she's left kind of frustrated by this failed romance and by her own sort of moribund marriage to Pontellier. Um, so that's, I think, a pretty basic plot summary. Um, there's a lot more to kind of get into. This is a pretty short book, but but one that's very rich in a lot of ways thematically and a lot of stuff to talk about. But I want to just throw it over to you, Carl, and um, have you tell us a little bit about why you picked this, why you thought it was a good pairing with Middlemarch, and some of the things you want to start to get at in our conversation tonight. Yeah, thanks, Norm. That's a great summary. So just right at the tail end of the um, 19th century, it has something perhaps to say in, I guess, the same historical context century-wise with Middlemarch. It certainly fits, I think, between the Dorothea of Middlemarch and the titular Madame Bovary, who we'll get to in a future episode with respect to lonely women in your area and what do they make of their life and what kind of outcomes do they pursue. I think there's kind of an interesting bridge between those two characters in Edna, and that's one of the largest reasons why I chose it, just kind of think about that thematic bridge. And then it's it's just a, a book I'd been meaning to revisit. There's some sort of intense dream quality to the writing that um, really grabs me and just how compact everything is, but how we get this sense of like afternoon reverie that we're in kind of for the entirety of the book and like a lazy summer nap where you have a certain kind of dream and you're not sure what the meaning of that dream was, but it felt sort of incredibly palpable. That's the feeling I get when I read this book. And so I was interested in kind of going back and seeing what else was there to this dreamlike quality here. That's a great place maybe for us to start and dig in here. You know, there's a lot that's been said about the themes of the book, and that's certainly one of the big reasons I think people read it. But I was also struck, like you, I'm going to be honest, this is my first time reading the book. I somehow missed it the first time around um, when I should have read it. But my first time reading through this book, and and I was struck also by this sort of dreamlike quality of the book. And so maybe I want to pose a question to you, Carl. We talked last time when we were talking about Gao Xingzhen of his writing as sort of somehow indebted maybe to Impressionism or post-Impressionism. And I wonder if you feel like there's a similar sense here in some different ways, certainly, but a sense of Impressionism in the writing. And I bring this up in particular because you mentioned this sense of dream-likeness. I think of the piece by the French musical Impressionist Gabriel Foire called Après un rêve, After a Dream. There's that sense of dreaminess that pervades a lot of Impressionist music, which is starting to develop around this time, and certainly with Impressionist painting that's coming over from France in the late 19th century, that haziness that still yields a richness of meaning and a dreamlike quality to the artistic endeavor. Do you think that there's some Impressionism going on here? I would start by saying it's a different kind of Impressionism than Soul Mountain's in the sense that it seems to me driven toward a more unitary effect. 
than that of Soul Mountain, which felt more skeptical, we were saying, or not entirely at home or at place in one tradition, but sampling and looking at all kinds of different traditions, at least philosophically. I think here there's a certain rootedness in one sort of point of view that persists, one sort of philosophical point of view, which I'll kind of get to later. But I don't think there's not Impressionism, but I don't know enough about musical Impressionism to say what the connection might be. A certain kind of Impressionism in the visual arts seems definitely connected with respect to how Edna paints and how she seems to have to paint a bit more Impressionistically and quickly, and also how she's often doesn't like the painting and doesn't think that it has been she doesn't have enough skill in making it realistic enough so that you know such things were said about like impressionist and post-impressionist styles of painting so there's some connections to be made there in the visual arts perhaps yeah i definitely agree with you on that point regarding soul mountain this does still feel like however hazy it is in some sense that we are pushing towards some particular end rather than sort of a plurality or a skeptical approach that doesn't want to make final decisions about things. It does feel like there's a unitary mind at work here mm-hmm. behind the text working towards a particular end. So, so I definitely agree with that. But I think you're right that at the level of technique, there's something very impressionistic going on here. And that even, you know, I think about that at the level even of something like the length of the chapters, which are very short, despite this being like, in my edition, it's barely over 100 pages, but you've got many, many chapters going on. And you have this these short bursts of chapters that, in other hands, might feel choppy, but really what it feels like to me in, in Kate Chopin's hands is that we're, we're floating in and out of that state of consciousness. We're, it's almost like we're if, if this were a movie, there would be like all these fade-ins and fade-outs between mm-hmm. scenes. We're just kind of going from one thing to another very intuitively rather than sort of logically, maybe, if that makes sense. These transitions are just sort of coming and going, and they're leaving some sort of mark on us, even if we don't fully grasp why one chapter is following another chapter, or why she chooses to break chapters where she does moodiness and whimsicality are sort of harped on often and there is a sense of like lots of changes of mind happening though to your former point there is also this sense across all of the chapters that nevertheless all of these different short bursts and short changes of mind are moving ultimately towards one large change or one large realization or awakening kind of like how the what is it the mathematicians say the drunkard's walk ultimately does have a certain kind of pattern to it um you get you get that sense and maybe it's the sense of like the brush stroke versus the full canvas when you look at like a monet there's a sense in which this book then is maybe occupying an interesting middle ground i, I was thinking about this in relation to not that we have to hash this out completely but it is interesting to think about this book and its place in the scope of American literature because it is, I mean, almost too perfectly, right? It's written in 1899 is when it comes out, right? And so it's like right on that cusp of these, these, this big changeover of centuries, but also a big changeover of the thrust of um, American literature, whatever you want to call that, if you want to call that 
the sort of burgeoning American modernism or something else, if you'd rather call it something else, that sort of movement away from, you know, the sorts of writing that dominated in the 19th century with people like Hawthorne, certainly, and Harriet Beecher Stowe. But we're not quite to the point of sort of the modernism of certainly of somebody like Faulkner, but even of somebody like a like a Henry James or something. We're not quite to that point yet, but we're making approaches at it or passes at it or something like that. And so we're kind of combining a little bit more experimentation of style and a little bit more haziness or impression, whatever you want to call that. But we're still anchored to something more unitary than what's coming next. And I, I think about that in relation, you know, I think this is maybe another way in which impressionism unlocks some of the meaning of this text because both in the visual arts, I think, and and certainly in music, which I know a little bit better, there's a sense of which impressionism is this brief fleeting moment between other movements, right? Between the realism of the 19th century in visual arts, I don't know if you can call music realist, but certainly a more straightforward approach um, of the late romantics. And then what's coming next, which is the sort of very difficult to grasp on to contemporary music that's coming with somebody like a Stravinsky or in, in the visual arts, somebody like Picasso, right? It's not that, but it's also not that realism or that straightforward sort of late romantic writing that you get in music. And so there's an in-betweenness of this. And that's part of, I think, to me, what makes it a beguiling text, because there's a sense of, just like a dream, it, it, there's a sense that it's going to wither away and disappear quickly and you're not going to be able to fully grasp what's going on in it but it's it leaves you sort of wanting more in that way just following the theme of the word awake or awakening or waking up you're constantly given something which is very quickly taken away in the sense that when you awake from a dream it all seems so clear in the very instant that you wake up and seconds and certainly minutes later it's often totally mysterious to you again and sort of gone constantly when we get this theme of awakening who is awakening or to what or from what those reference shift so widely that across the book even though it's so short you feel the need to go back and try and look at them all again and piece them together Something I did for a very bad undergraduate paper that didn't turn out very good. But. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a, that's a really wonderful point, Carl. It struck me that part of what's going on in the book is that Edna herself is trying repeatedly and failing repeatedly to grasp what it really is that she wants out of life. Because there's sort of maybe the back of the book version or the version that you tell somebody when you're describing what the book's about, which is like, oh, it's about unhappiness in marriage and then marital infidelity but reading through I didn't really think that that was the point of what Edna was going through the point was that she had a certain ennui a certain malaise about her life and she was trying to grasp how to make sense of her life and how to have her life have meaning in it and she was constantly grasping at that and almost achieving it like when you're in a dream and you're on the cusp of doing something great and then suddenly you wake up and it disappears right i like that 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 image that you've given us here in terms of the the emotional register of the book is very much about that longing that can't quite be fulfilled that we're striving after but we never quite reach and speaking of like the back of the book reading right it's important to note that the book and like Madame Bovary, was a controversy at its time, a scandal. And 
Kate Chopin herself was part of like the, the New Orleans Creole culture for a while. And then her husband, I think, died and she moved to St. Louis, where she originally was from, and then wrote this book. And so it's interesting to think what in the social mores of the 1890s made this a scandalous book. I doubt those reasons are the reasons anyone would consider it scandalous today, but I thought that was an important sort of note to hash out. So my back of the book includes a quote from the very well-known early 20th century critic Edmund Wilson, where he says he characterized it as a work quite uninhibited and beautifully written, which anticipates D.H. Lawrence in its treatment of infidelity. And I'm really scratching my head over that one because, (laughs) I mean, it anticipates D.H. Lawrence in its treatment of infidelity insofar as it talks about infidelity. (laughs) But this book, compared to D.H. Lawrence's writing, it's very muted in its... Right. D.H. Lawrence, even though he was writing not much after this, was extremely straightforward in, in some of his books, at least in dealing with the erotic elements and those mm-hmm. things. Not subtle um, and perhaps not very skillful either, you know, depending on how you want to look at it. But of course, the displays of eroticism here, you know, however you want to put that, are extremely muted. So, so finely tuned as to be imperceptible, maybe mm-hmm. to the modern eye, at least. Probably it was a little bit easier to detect in the, you know, for a late 19th century reader um, than it is for us, but it does seem very muted in that regard. And so it is, I I agree. It's kind of funny to think about like the ways in which maybe this stirred up controversy in its day for, for what amounts to, you know, like a couple of kisses as far as we can tell (laughs) um, in terms of the actual infidelity going on. And so, yeah, it is interesting to think about that in that context and, and the changing contexts of, how we might approach the book today. One thing I want to press on from what you just said, though, which I didn't know, so thank you for enlightening me, is that Chopin's story sort of mirrors the story of Edna in terms of background. So in the book, Edna is the daughter of a Confederate colonel from Kentucky. He's a horse race man. (laughs) And we're never completely told why, but somehow this, she's a Protestant, you know, from Kentucky. She ends up marrying this French Creole Catholic man in um, New Orleans, which is a weird outlier in the United States and in the South even for being this French Catholic state largely surrounded by these sort of more Protestant states. But it too, you know, did participated in the slave trade, things like that, was a, was a member of the Confederacy. And so you have this strange blending of cultures going on and different perspectives. And, and I was really delighted. There's one point in the book one of the only times we get a reference to another work of literature, we're not entirely sure what it is, but Edna is described as like sitting in her house reading Emerson. And I found that to be a really delightful picture of the 19th century America, <laughs> that this Protestant colonel's daughter from Kentucky is sitting in French Catholic New Orleans <laughs> reading this transcendentalist Unitarian from the Boston area. And that's like sort of, that's America, right? That's what people are doing in 19th century America. There's this crossing of cultural streams. And so it really does, in some ways, question what it means to write American literature in the 19th century. Because so much of it, we think, you know, I think, being an outsider to this field, I think about people from New England writing literature, right? And maybe you have some other scattered people here and there, but primarily it's the literature of New England. And so Kate Chopin's kind of opening us up to other possibilities of what that means. 
and that, that's starting to become maybe more common by this point in time. You know, I think about somebody who would have been Chopin's contemporary, Willa Cather, who's starting to write the literature of the Midwest and even the Southwest at times. Um, but there's a kind of an opening of the vista of what American literature might look like. I like what you say, Sarn, about this sort of panorama of American regions crossing and intersecting. It makes me think of somebody like Walt Whitman trying to hold together all of these different regions in certain ways, or, you know, Lincoln on the railroad giving different speeches across various aspects of the Midwest and the country. It is a nice image to put in our stock photos of 19th century literary figures. I wonder if you make more of Mr. Pontellier and his background or his doings in the in the Grand Isle or just him as a figure. Did you find him to be kind of an interesting character in this story, especially because you brought up this idea that like it's supposed to be about a bad marriage, but really they are fairly agreeable towards each other and when Edna moves out sort of at the end to to her own place, he kind of goes to great lengths to cover it as a business venture. In some ways, um, if we want to be like sympathetic towards him as a character, maybe even overly sympathetic, as a way to kind of like help her almost and to go with his friend, his doctor friend's advice to just let her do what she wants to do, kind of take a gentle touch to all of the things that are happening. He was an interesting figure, and I wonder if his Catholicism, his Creole culture, and the kind of business doings that he has added anything to the book for you. And there's kind of a couple of ways to approach that. One is, you're right, that he, I think as a figure, does come across as quite sympathetic and himself empathetic towards his wife's plight in, in some ways, even though in other ways he doesn't understand what's going on. He kind of is like, well, you got everything you want. Like, what more could you need? But... In other ways, you're absolutely right. He goes to great lengths to try to protect his wife from potential scandal. And also, I'm glad you brought up the doctor because he is the person who brings the doctor into the story. Mm -hmm. And it seems like at the end, the doctor is the one person who might have been able to reach out to Edna in a meaningful way and help her kind of reground herself in reality. I'll go ahead and throw out a spoiler here for a 100-plus-year-old book. (laughs) which is at the very end of the book, Edna, having been rejected by Lebrun, not rejected, but he, he leaves her, he says, it's for your own good. She goes out, back out to the island, and she drowns herself. And as she's doing so, she kind of is thinking through her life, and she's like, oh, maybe if I had talked to the doctor, I would have been okay. And he seems like a, he seems like a highly sympathetic character in the book, and he's there to lend an ear to her and listen to her and everything like that. Um, But for whatever reason, she's not able to go through with that. And so it has to end with her death. But you're right that Monsieur Pontellier is trying to facilitate that for his wife. And and so I think that that's definitely worth noting. The other thing I think you're right to bring up is Catholicism, which isn't strongly felt in the book directly. But what is felt is this sort of interesting, especially for perhaps for the time and the context of America, the sort of laissez-faire attitude that comes with the Creole Catholicism, and I don't want to veer too much into like cultural stereotypes about the French here or something, but there is a sense of kind of strange permissiveness among all of the men in the book regarding their wives, right? It's like, oh yeah, your wa- my wife can just spend all day with this other man, 
because he's just a total simp and it doesn't really mean <laughs> anything. Of course, I'm going to let this guy like hang out and put his arm around my wife because he's just a little feckless idiot, uh. right? And it, it doesn't it doesn't have anything to do with our marriage whatsoever. And so he's sort of Pontellier, along with the other men in the book, just sort of laugh off characters like LeBrun in part because they're not rich or, or sort of powerful or important in the business world. There's a surprising sort of latitude there. Like it takes a whole lot to actually bring about a scandal in this society. Maybe not compared to our day, but certainly compared to other areas in America at the time that, you know, this sort of flirtatious behavior doesn't really mean anything. It's not equated automatically with unfaithfulness or something like that. There's a sort of live and let live attitude going on. But but I also was very fascinated by one aspect of this Monsieur Patelier's place in this book, which is just the fact that he's so often gone. And <laughs> and this is just like, I think this is more common 100 years ago when you when we were maybe having to travel for business and it was travel was slow and things like that. But like, you know, this is a sort of situation where the women over the summer, they're on this island constantly, and the men are there maybe on the weekend, and then during the week, they're back in New Orleans doing business. And then at a key moment of the book, Monsieur Pontellier goes to New York City because he has to take care of this business himself. He can't farm it out to anybody else. We're not really sure. I'm not really sure what he does in the book in terms of his business, but he's doing something, trading commodities or something like that. And he absolutely has to go to New York City, and so he's just gone. He's just absent from the book, and she sends her sons away to her mother-in-law's house out in the country in Louisiana. And so she just has all of this sort of unsupervised free time where she's apart from her husband. And it strikes me that that, I mean, that's in part, I think, just sort of the reality of the time. You know, if you're sort of an upper-class person and your your husband's a businessman, he's probably just going to be gone a fair amount of the time. But also just the very casual way in which he treats that absence not even her, you know, she has her own reasons for being excited by it or, or interested in him being gone. But he just doesn't seem very concerned. It's like, okay, I'm going to go away for a couple of months and then I'll come back and we'll just kind of pick up where we left off. It's a very different sort of attitude than maybe we have today. Yeah, and I mean, this is a good 20-some years before like the eight-hour workday or anything, right? So this is 19th century capitalism, right? You are in some kind of serious sense, married to your work as well, uh, maybe first. Good, yeah, so I'm glad that you're help, you helped me and helped us uh, sort of puncture a bit of the stereotype of Mr. Pontellier because there is like the sort of first reading or, you know, 101 reading of this book, which is true in many ways, which is, you know, like on page 57. Mr. Pontellier had been a rather courteous husband so long as he met a certain tacit submissiveness in his wife. So he very clearly treats her as his property. But her new and unexpected line of conduct completely bewildered him. It shocked him. Then her absolute disregard for her duties as a wife angered him. When Mr. Pontellier became rude, Edna grew insolent. She had resolved never to take another step backward. So you see certain moments, as you see in Middlemarch, of like feminist or proto-feminist revolt against this dominion that men have over their wives and the way they treat their wives. But I do think that his character is a little bit has a little bit more complexity than just that tone, though that tone is very dominant and that theme repeats often in the book. I like what you're saying, Carl, about the complicating nuance 
going on in the book in terms of Monsieur Potelier and the way that the picture of him doesn't conform maybe to the easy stereotype we want to bring to him. That brings to mind another sort of complicating factor here, which is the fact that, and, and this is maybe true of a lot of, maybe a lot of early feminist texts, that the putative liberation of the women in the book is based on unseen labor that's being done by others. And in yes. particular in this book, that's a, that's a racialized sense of labor because floating through this book and there are there are so many terms readers um, if you haven't read this book so many different terms that the creoles have for like exactly how much mixed blood you have or something like that so there's you know i'm not going to repeat these terms but they're, they're certainly dated but there's a bunch of different designations for where a person falls within the society or really below the society because they're not part of the the white society of the time but these are people who are maids and cooks and nannies and so we got to sort of point out that Edna doesn't really have any responsibilities, right? Her responsibility is, I guess, to keep her husband happy and to sort of keep the household running. But the care of her children is entirely in the charge of nannies. Mm -hmm. The cooking is completely done by servants. Everything is being done by these servants who 40 years earlier would have been slaves, right? We're still kind of working in the shadow of slavery here. And so... There's a lot of work that goes into Edna being able to even try to think about freeing herself from the bonds of boredom or whatever it is that's going on here. <laughs> and and I want to say, like, I think that the book is at least to a certain extent aware of that. I'm not going to say that Chopin would have held racial views that we would hold today or something like that. But I think there's at least a hint of an awareness in the book that Edna's freedom is coming at the expense of other people simply because it would be easy to make a lot of those characters just completely invisible, but we're always being reminded of the mm -hmm. presence of these servants. They form a sort of backdrop to the action in ways that are noticeable. And so even though I, I don't want to make the claim that she's really thinking subversively about this or something, but it's at least in her field of vision that there are other people here that are not being talked about and that are doing a lot of the work that's making the action of the novel possible. It is worth noting, though, that almost every reference to a non-white unpaid worker or worker who's around Edna or in her house in some way is like very dismissive. And it, it's taken from the point of view or kind of third person close point of view of Edna, but it's it's never like thankful in some way that, that a <laughs> no, certain, certain amount not. of work has been done for her by someone else it's often that work was done and the person got in trouble for doing it <laughs> uh, like not well enough or because Edna's going through a certain kind of like psychological journey or malaise the pain of that or the difficulty of that for her is thrust upon these african-american workers in her house and there's no to me the text doesn't really put any distance between Kate Chopin and Edna on those points but that's just how I read it yeah it's definitely a defect of the text and I do agree with you in one sense I guess I did maybe this is just my very anomalous reading of the text I would say in general I read the text as slightly more critical of Edna than I would have expected going in based mm -hmm. on my preconceptions about the text so maybe that filtered a little bit too much 
what you're pointing out, which is that there is a sort of deadening going on because we're so much locked into Edna's perspective from this close third person perspective. So, so I think you're right. Maybe I'll walk that back a little bit, what I said. But I do think that there is at least a hint of an edge of criticism here somewhere. But but I, I might be very idiosyncratic in terms of my reading of that. I just wanted to say, I think part of what you're drawing on to me links up to this idea, though, that to the other people in her life that I think Edna and Kate Chopin obviously value way more highly along these racial lines, like Robert and her husband and her friends, Mademoiselle Ratignol and Mademoiselle Reese, who we should talk about a little bit too. Edna's journey towards some kind of awakening is also seen by them as a certain kind of selfishness. And she herself reflects on that and notices that other people are viewing it, not just as some kind of, again, proto-feminist work, but rather as like somewhat selfish or somewhat troubling or the result of a certain kind of trouble she's going through. And she herself acknowledges that. But I don't think she acknowledges that across the, the racial lines. I know that you wanted to take us to some sort of very philosophically intriguing sections of the book. So I think maybe that means that it's time for our favorite section of the show, which is Carl's Corner. In fact, I think I hear the Carl's Corner music playing right now. On this theme that Soren has brought us to of race and class, the common phrase, a labor of love, connotes for us the fact that a certain kind of labor, say, fixing up old cars or creating a mural from beach shore sea glass, is a kind of love. However, we don't have a common phrase, at least not that I know of, for the contrary, that a certain kind of love, like that of Edna's for Robert, is a kind of labor. Out of the Italian operismo and autonomous Marxist movements of the 1970s, there came a certain desire to seek out hitherto unidentified forms of labor, hidden labor, unseen labor. Today, economists and sociologists talk about effective labor, the labor our bodies do in being required to perform certain emotional responses, say in the service industry. They also talk about certain kinds of unpaid labor with respect to feminized domestic work, such as childcare and household tasks like cleaning and cooking for a family. Some governments have monetized such work, even offering payment for women to do the labor of, well, labor, and start a family. Nevertheless, few Marxists or theorists have gone all the way down to the end of this line of thought, the end which Edna Pontellier dares and defies to visit. And that end is this. That love itself, the very acts of falling in love, nurturing and pursuing and maintaining that love, are themselves a kind of labor. I'd call it erotic labor. And before our listeners get a little red scared that I am suggesting a certain kind of Leninist revolution against anyone's private feelings of love or private relationships, let me be clear that I think it is precisely Edna's realization that her love is a kind of labor that terrifies her and forces her to contemplate an escape, an awakening in line with Marx's original idea about the need for revolution stemming from a need to transcend the alienation from labor that capitalism hath wrought. To define my sense of Edna's version of erotic labor, I turn to Marx's Economic and Philosophic Manuscripts of 1844. So I'll quote Marx first, and then I'll corrupt the quote to make my point. 
The outstanding achievement of Hegel's phenomenology and of its final outcome, the dialectic of negativity as the moving and generating principle, is thus first that Hegel conceives the self-creation of man as a process, conceives objectification as loss of the object, as alienation and as transcendence of this alienation, that he thus grasps the essence of labor and comprehends objective man true because real man has the outcome of man's own labor, the real active orientation of man to himself as a species being or his manifestation as a real species being i.e. as a human being is only possible if he really brings out all his species powers something which in turn is only possible through the cooperative action of all of mankind only as a result of history and treats these powers as objects and this to begin with is again only possible in the form of estrangement let us provisionally say just this much in advance. Hegel's standpoint is that of modern political economy. He grasps labor as the essence of man, as man's essence which stands the test. He sees only the positive, not the negative side of labor. Labor is man's coming to be for himself within alienation, or as alienated man. The only labor which Hegel knows and recognizes is abstractly mental labor. Therefore, that which constitutes the essence of philosophy, the alienation of man who knows himself, or alienated science thinking itself, Hegel grasps as its essence. Okay, and here's my corruption. The outstanding achievement of Kate Chopin's The Awakening and of its final outcome, the dialectic of negativity as suicide as the moving and generating principle, i.e. the awakening, is thus first that Chopin conceives the self-creation of Edna as a process, conceives her objectification as loss of the object of her marriage, as alienation from her erotic labor and as transcendence of this alienation, that Chopin thus grasps the essence of labor as love and comprehends subjectivity, true, because real subjects, as the outcome of one's own erotic labor, the real active orientation of Edna to herself as a species being, or Edna's awakening as a real artistic being, i.e. as a human being, is only possible if she really brings out all her artistic powers, something which in turn is only possible through the cooperative action of all of her alternatively laboring comrades. Robert, the effective laborer, Mademoiselle Rees, the artistic laborer, Aroban, the sex worker, or we might say scandal worker, and Mademoiselle Ratignol, the really in labor laborer, not to mention the numerous African-American laborers whom the novel, unfortunately, fails to count for in any real or genuine way, only as the result of history, and treats these artistic powers as objects. By moving into her own artistic studio by herself, she attempts to own her own means of artistic and erotic production. And this, to begin with, is again only possible in the form of estrangement, or as Kate Chopin calls it, awakening. Let us provisionally say just this much in advance. Chopin's standpoint is that of modern political economy. Chopin grasps erotic labor as the essence of Edna's subjectivity, as a woman's essence which stands the test. Edna sees only the positive, not the negative side of unpaid erotic labor. Erotic labor is Edna's coming to be for herself within alienation, or as alienated woman. The only erotic labor which Chopin knows and recognizes is abstractly mental erotic labor, Edna's pining, wanting, longing, and wandering. Therefore, that which constitutes the essence of philosophy, the alienation of the subject who knows themselves, or alienated science thinking itself, Chopin grasps in essence. Okay, so Edna's desire is for her erotic labor to be free, just as the parrot enjoins her in French in the very first words to go away. For Edna, the erotic laborer, there is no weekend, no time off, no vacation, and no benefits. She demands the rights of an erotic laborer to choose the terms and conditions of her work. 
She says, I would give up the unessential, my money, my life for, for my children, but I wouldn't give up myself. This self, what Marx calls the essence of man, is Edna's erotic labor power, by which I mean her ability to choose who she loves and why she loves them, independently of social mores. Unlike her friend Mademoiselle Ratignol, who chooses to let her affective labor determine her entire selfhood and the nature and power of all of her relationships, for indeed such was the totality of social control expected of quote-unquote good women at the time, Edna demands, like a good anarchist, that effective labor have its limits. She will see her father up until a point, but then he must go. She will do unpaid childcare for a time, but then servants must take over. She will not go to her sister's wedding if the trip is too far. She will not work overtime without getting paid extra for it. Further, the limits of effective labor shall not marketize her erotic labor, which must be freely given and freely undergone. When Robert wants to marry her, Edna rejects the notion that the economic contract of marriage implied at the time. She will not sell her erotic labor so cheaply. In Shakespeare's Love's Labor's Lost, three men decide to stave off love and instead pursue labor or other pleasures. One of these men, Demain, who Edna seems to be channeling for most of the novel, remarks, the grosser manner of these world's delights he throws upon the gross world's baser slaves. To love, to wealth, to pomp, I pine and die with all these living in philosophy. However, by the end of the novel, Edna seems to be channeling one of the women pursued by these three men, the Princess of France, who remarks, Nay, my good lord, let me oral rule you now, that sport that best pleases that doth least know how where zeal strives to content, and the contents die in the zeal of that which it presents. Their form confounded makes most form in mirth, when great things laboring perish in their birth. To my point that we lack a common phrase for the opposite of labor of love, what I call erotic labor, Shakespeare's Love's Labor's Lost uses the word love dozens of times. But this quote from the princess is the only instance in the play of the word labor. That love's labor's lost's comedy comes from the fact that the men cannot stave off love for laboring affects my Marxian point about the essence of erotic labor. Love's labor's lost become erotic labor's joys. So long, that is, as they remain demonetized and can become later a Proustian time regained, which is what Edna seeks when she enters the ocean, remembering the field of her youth when her time and her subjectivity were entirely unstructured by work. Let me put this final point one more way. On YouTube, content is often demonetized when it violates certain rules, one of which, curiously, is the rule of being too erotic. Or we might say, when YouTube content becomes erotic labor, it is demonetized. Edna's position is not that of the modern sex worker who would want their erotic labor re-monetized on a site like OnlyFans or whatever. Instead, she is more in line with certain kinds of autonomous, Catholic-inflected Marxism, suggesting that because it is of the very essence of any subject to be an erotic labor, this labor must be, now and forever, demonetized for all. Here the Marxian call for childlike time unstructured by work to be a hallmark of socialist utopia and the Christian call of Jesus to be like children in order to enter into the kingdom of heaven, unite in Edna's remembering Mademoiselle Ragnagnol's call to think of the children, Edna, which she does right before her suicide, albeit with a radically different interpretation to that of her friend. It is this way, as Edna awakens with her steps into the ocean, that a certain kind of private erotic property is aufhebend or transcended, 
and a Marxian utopia, a kingdom of heaven, and a community of equals who can and must give their love freely is ushered in. From Robert, the mercantile man of various textiles, from Mademoiselle Radignol, ever sewing and mending, from a tyranny of endless effective labor without ceasing, Edna decides to awaken. She does this when, quote, she cast the unpleasant pricking garments from her, and for the first time in her life she stood naked in the open air. As the men in Love's Labor's Lost Remark, notable historical figures who are notorious for their love include the biblical figure of Samson. Early in the play, the humorist Don Andriano de Armado confesses, quote, I am in love, and as it is base for a soldier to love, so am I in love with a base wench. If drawing my sword against the humor of affection would deliver me from the reprobate thought of it, I would take desire prisoner and ransom him to any French courtier for a new devised courtesy. I think scorn to sigh, methinks I should outswear Cupid. Comfort me, boy, what great men have been in love. The Don's page, Moth, replies, Samson, master. According to the book of Hebrews, Samson is an archetype along with Moses of those who, quote, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. Edna, too, might be read as a kind of Samson, a name we have to recall when awakened from desire's imprisonment, a hero we might list when we ask, boy, what great women have been erotic labor's revolutionaries. Thank you, Carl, for that very stimulating edition of Carl's Corner, so to speak. We're getting near the end here, and we've had a lot to think about and a lot to talk about. I want to talk about at least one more thing that's running through the book, which I brought up a little bit at the very beginning of the episode, and that's the place of music in this book. It's an interesting book insofar as we have the literary element. There are mentions of books running throughout. There's certainly the visual element. Edna is a painter, and we get descriptions of her work and her process, but... There's also the occurrence throughout the book of music as something that is specially tied to this sense of awakening. And so I wanted to think through it in a couple of different ways because here, unlike with the literary elements and the painting elements, which are sometimes somewhat vague and obscure, Chopin actually gives us references to particular works of music that are being performed, primarily on the piano as a sort of solo instrument, but are being performed throughout the book and are awakening something particularly in Edna. For one, I want to talk about one and then I'll go to a passage where we talk about another one. One of the pieces of music that's running through this in a sort of reduced piano form, it's traditionally performed by a full orchestra, is the Poet and Peasant Overture by Franz von Suppe, who's maybe best known for his light cavalry overture. He wrote a lot of overtures. But the Poet and Peasant is a, is a very notable piece, and I say this maybe from a position of bias, being a, a cellist throughout my life. The Poet and Peasant Overture begins with this really lovely solo from a, a, the, the principal cellist of the orchestra, cannot be replicated on the piano alone of the part of the poet right this really literally is a poet 
and a peasant, right? And so you have the peasant part later on, which is like very bouncy, right? Getting drunk, etc. in the inn. But you have this opening, searing, lovely piece of music that is the, the, the soul of the poet going out. And so there's that sense of a sort of romantic view of poetry as somehow transcendent. And I mean that in capital R sense of romanticism, right? The poet as some sort of great soul moving beyond the earth. And what better way to do that than via the cello, uh, the most soulful <laughs> of all instruments. And so that's a really lovely piece. Um, I'm going to drop it in here uh, so you can get a taste of it. But uh, a lovely piece to have in our minds as we're thinking about the way that music is working in this book. Because it does seem, and I don't necessarily agree with this, but the picture that we're given in the book of music is as maybe that one thing that can really awaken our souls and to move us beyond words somehow. I want to read a passage from quite early in the book where Edna first encounters Madame Reese's music. She's a she's a pianist. She performs, and, and Edna comes back to her throughout the book because of her ability to play music so soulfully. And here we're going to get a reference of, of course, the wonderful composer who shares a name with the author of our book, Chopin, this is what Chopin says early in the book. Edna was what she herself called very fond of music. Musical strains, well rendered, had a way of evoking pictures in her mind. One piece which that lady, who's Madame Ratignol, played Edna had entitled Solitude. It was a short, plaintive minor strain. The name of the piece was something else, but she called it Solitude. When she heard it, there came before her imagination the figure of a man standing beside a desolate rock on the seashore. He was naked. His attitude was one of hopeless resignation as he looked toward a distant bird winging its flight away from him. But then, on the very next page, we get a picture of what happens when Madame Rhys plays. The very first chords which Mademoiselle Rhys struck upon the piano sent a keen tremor down Mrs. Pontellier's spinal column. It was not the first time she had heard an artist at the piano. Perhaps it was the first time she was ready, perhaps the first time her being was tempered, to take an impress of the abiding truth. She waited for the material pictures which she thought would gather and blaze before her imagination. She waited in vain. She saw no pictures of solitude, of hope, of longing, or of despair. But the very passions themselves were aroused within her soul, swaying it, lashing it, as the waves daily beat upon her splendid body. She trembled, she was choking, and the tears blinded her. And we learn later in that passage that what she's been, Madame Reese has been playing is, in fact, Chopin, and I think it's a Chopin improvisation, which is a wonderful uh, mm -hmm. sort of encapsulation of a lot of what's going on here. We have the piece of piano music that's being played in a quasi-improvisatory way, a sense of freedom about it, even though, of course, the notes are, in fact, written on the page. And what we have here is a really fascinating moment of almost a, a sort of leveling up in Edna's understanding of what music is and is capable of. We sort of have the earlier sense of music as representation somehow and this is pretty common and, and I think there's something to this right if you listen to something like Beethoven's sixth symphony the pastoral symphony it does in fact depict a scene of life in the countryside and the and the seasons and nature going by 
And so there's something to that. There's something to that figural sense. And, and many people get images in their mind when they listen to music. But then there is a movement beyond that that may or may not be possible, but that Edna certainly seems to experience in this moment of music as sort of pure abstraction and music as pure emotion that comes to us and unsettles us and maybe awakens us in some sense that, again, we can't quite put into words. And there's that sense of the ineffable in music that makes it alluring, but also in some ways maybe unsatisfying, ultimately. It can't be grasped in the same way that a piece of visual art can be grasped. And that's not to diminish visual art at all. I think great works of art probably can't be fully grasped, but there's a sense of not even being able to begin to grasp what it is about this piece of music that moves us so. And I think there's something to that. There's a movement certainly by the end of the 19th century, towards music as a sort of purity of expression, as a way to express in a non-figural or non-representational way some of the deepest parts of who we are, some of those deepest longings that we have. And so it's, I think, not a surprise to me that throughout the book, Edna's awakenings are often accompanied by music. There's something, again, fleeting about music, that disappears. It's ephemeral in that way. But its very ephemerality gives it a charged sense of meaning for us. Yeah, I like how you combine a sense of like pure abstraction in music and this sort of haziness and impression and improvisation that we were talking about before. I think the book does really kind of combine those two things at the top of its symbolic ordering in a really interesting way. The I'm more on the visual end and you're more on the musical end when it comes to the arts. The first part of what you said reminded me of that, like Caspar David Friedrich's The Traveler, which is like yes. the classic like book cover photo used on every like <laughs> capital R romanticism <laughs> anthology. But that too, because it's like the figure looking away at the sea, not at you, has a certain mystery about it, at least to me. But I do think that this book sides with music in the way that it's that famous like Walter Pater quote, right? All great art aspires to the condition of music. That kind of, you know, for Pater or for Dante, the Paradiso is all musical. It's pure poetry. It's pure sound. Something about the pure abstraction of music. Um, that way of thinking about the arts and sort of championing music as the queen of the arts makes a lot of sense in this book. It also maps onto the fact that the character who has the most freedom, the most uh, abstraction, certainly for a woman, is Mademoiselle Reese, who just plays her Beethoven under her Beethoven bust, plays whatever she wants, whenever she wants, and has a certain kind of freedom from what I would call effective labor that the other women have to perform. They have to be nice. And um, what Edna really hates is like she has to do all of these like sittings and callings or whatever they were like this 19th century practice of like if you're like a famous businessman's wife you have to like sit home all day and then like entertain people who come visit you just to visit you just to like keep up the moors or keep social circle flowing and circulating or something and she just refuses to do that and she, i think she, and she goes and sees mademoiselle reese all the time because i think she might like she envies that kind of freedom that she has to just 
sit and practice her art. You know, that's kind of what she's trying to do at the end with painting, is get her own place where there's no callers and she just can turn off all her social media and paint, you know. Great. I think that's a good place to stop for now. We've put this book through its paces in a lot of ways, but I think we've squeezed a lot of juice from it. Thanks for sharing this book with us, Carl, and and leading us through some of its more difficult and abstruse corners. I think it was a a good pick and a good way to take a different angle on some of the themes that are in Middlemarch, for sure, of sort of loneliness, of not quite knowing what it is that you're striving for and not being able to achieve it. But it's certainly a different register than, than Middlemarch does it. We'll be back next time uh, with my second pick of the season, uh, continuing our theme of Lonely Women in Your Area, which is Gustave Flaubert's Madame Bovary. I'm excited about this pick as well. Of course, a cl- another classic of the 19th century of Lonely Women, and, and in many ways a very literary book. So I'm sure we'll have plenty to talk about in that regard. But uh, until we reach that point, we will let Cat Keyboard play us out. Yeah.